1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 47, would you read along with me through 52? For these are the very words of God. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, the name of the younger, Mishal, and the name of Saul's wife, Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. 1 Samuel 14 ends with a summary of Saul's reign over Israel. It begins with him taking over and it gives us this summation of how effective of a protector and warrior he was. Now, why would 1 Samuel 14 end like this? If you recall, last week we had the debacle of Saul's rash oath. And now we just transition right away into this seemingly out of place summary of his kingdom. The reason 1 Samuel 14 ends with this summary of Saul and his kingdom is because 1 Samuel 15 is going to introduce us to the rejection of Saul. In other words, Saul is about to begun to be moved out of the picture. And so as the author of 1 Samuel, I presume is Samuel, as Samuel is doing the literary function that he's serving here, is that he knows it's time to take our attention in a large part off of Saul. So he wants to give a brief summary of Saul's reign and Saul's kingdom before we move on to our next main character. I don't know if you recall way back when we started this series, but we discussed how the book of 1 Samuel essentially follows three main characters. It follows Samuel and we saw his life. It follows Saul, and we've been seeing his life, and now it's time to begin the transition to turn our attention to the next main character, David. What we are going to find in 1 Samuel 15 is Saul is going to be rejected as the king of Israel. Now, we've already seen Saul's lineage be rejected. His dynasty has been rejected, but he himself has not yet been rejected. His children have been, but he has not. But Saul is going to, in 1 Samuel 15, push God too far. And so God is going to cut him off and replace him with a new king of Israel. And so 1 Samuel 14 ends with this general summary of his kingship now that it has come to an end for us. And what's interesting is that it's relatively positive. Obviously, we are going to develop some harsh feelings for Saul as we continue through 1 Samuel, for good reason. Saul is going to prove himself to be a not very good spiritual man. Saul is not going to show himself as a, a model for our children, that's for sure. But it's important for us to see that although he was not a good spiritual, religious man, which is the most important, we should at least, according to Scripture, give credit where credit's due. He was an efficient political ruler. He was not a good man, but he was an efficient king, a valiant warrior capable of protecting Israel from her enemies. And, and the reason it's important for us to remember that is because it shows us exactly what we saw God tell Israel when they first demanded a king. 
God kind of gave them two seemingly contradictory, you call it a paradox, he gave them two paradoxical interpretations. He says, on the one hand, this is sinful and the king is going to end up being really bad for you. But he said, on the other hand, I will bless you. I will use this king to protect you. And so we've seen God's word come true. It's vindicated in that for all of Saul's weaknesses, he was able to protect Israel from her enemies. He was a valiant, courageous political leader. But obviously what's far more important is the state of his spiritual leadership. And we will find in 1 Samuel 15 that that is not good. But before we do that, we have to do two things. And we're going to spend this week and next week on them. And the reason I say that is 1 Samuel 15 is famous for a couple of reasons. It's famous for everything I just got done mentioning here. It's this huge shift, this huge turning point in the narrative as we now focus and begin to transition towards David. But it's also famous, especially in contemporary culture, because there's a couple elements, there's a few verses or passages which have proved to be very, very controversial and difficult for people, Christians and non-Christians alike. There are some very hard things in 1 Samuel, and my fear is if we were to just preach through it, adequate time would not be given to it. If we were to just preach through it, they would become a distraction in your mind. And as I'm trying to teach us about what 1 Samuel is about, you would be thinking about these hard things. So the next two weeks are going to be more like topical preaching. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 15, technically, but we're going to be focusing on these isolated incidents so that they won't be a distraction for us when we finally get to 1 Samuel 15 as a whole. So this week and next week are going to sound a little bit more like topical preaching. And this week, what we're going to examine is the issue of divine violence. One of the more distracting things about 1 Samuel 15 is this passage, along with a few other passages in Scripture, give us a view of God that, if we're honest with ourselves, is not a comfortable view of God. It's not something that, whether you're a Christian or even a non-Christian, that typically goes down easy. What do we do when the Bible presents us with a violent God. 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 1. We will read just the first three verses for our text this morning, if you would follow along. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Paul Copen is a Christian apologist. I don't recommend everything he says or everything he writes, but he wrote a pretty decent book under the title, Is God a Moral Monster? Now, I don't know if he's the one who coined that title and made it popular, or if it was already popular and that's why he used it for his book. But after the Enlightenment and as as Christianity has become less and less popular throughout the history of our country and really Western thought... This phrase, is God a moral monster, this question has been asked and people have debated it vigorously. What do we do with a text like 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3? 
What do we do when God commands genocide? This is genocide. Why does God want to wipe everything out so that they cannot reproduce? He wants to end this people group. He doesn't want this people group to exist anymore. This is genocide. God is commanding genocide. But he's not just commanding genocide. Specifically, in order to carry out genocide, what has to happen? Who has to die? Children, women, infants. What do we do with the text where God commands the slaughter of babies? I would call to remind you that technological advancements back then were not what we have today. There weren't very many ways to peacefully and quickly end someone's life. What on earth do we do with this? Is not God a moral monster? Who would follow this God? Who would believe this God? I want us to focus on this issue of divine violence. I want us to wrestle with this question this morning. Is God a moral monster? I want to give us four responses that I think will help ease the tension. I don't pretend like anything I'm going to say today is necessarily going to eviscerate any moral tension you have. And by the way, I don't think the Bible even tells us anywhere that God wants it to be eviscerated. We have no indication in Scripture that God's will for you as you approach the text of the Bible is to never ever be insulted, never ever be confused, never ever be offended. The Bible just doesn't say that. So maybe we wrestle with this tension, this difficulty, and maybe God is perfectly fine with that. So I'm not pretending like I've got every answer that's going to make all of your questions and all of your emotional responses go away, but I think I can help soften the blow. And I want to give us four ways that we respond to divine violence. But let me begin with separately, though, with two ways not to respond to it. I want to give us four things that we should take to the text like this. But let me just begin with two very important ways that you should never respond to a text like this. And the first one is never respond with atheism. Don't ever think that this is a text that ought to, in any good reason, lead you into believing that God does not exist or that he's not worthy of your worship. Now, that might seem like an obvious statement in a room full of Christians, but that is exactly how this text is leveraged in the world. Professors, and this is why, as a side note, this is why it's so important your children are in the room today. Because if we hide our children from this, if we hide this from them, I promise you their college professors won't. I promise you they won't. And not only will your college professors give it to you, but they will provide their own interpretive framework to tell you how to read it. That's our job. It is important that we confront this text head on, and it is important that we see that it is ludicrous to use this text, to hold it up, to throw it in your face and say, look, you shouldn't be a Christian. Now, why is it ludicrous to do that? Well, there's two reasons why that is an insane response to a text like this, to abandon your belief and love for God altogether because you read something hard. The first one is that's just absolutely very poor logic. I hope it's not the logic professors at college that are utilizing this. It's very poor logic. Notice if we take it, the emotions out of it, and we, we phrase it, the logic of this, here's the logic. God did something you don't like, therefore he doesn't exist. That does not follow at all. How many times do you as parents do things that your children don't like? You ever spank your kids? You ever tell your kids no? Your kids think you're mean. Your kids don't like you. Your kids don't understand what you're doing. Therefore, you don't exist. 
If God didn't exist, how could he do things that we don't like? It is insane to assume, I read this, I don't like it, he must not exist. Very bad logic. But typically, that's not really what they're going for. Typically, it's more not trying to get you to reject your belief in God, but maybe just simply your love for him. How could you love a God like this? He does evil, capricious, cruel things. He does things that some of the world's worst people don't do. How could you love a God like that? Well, here's the second problem with that. The position that the world wants you to jump into. They want you to read this text and say, okay, yeah, Yahweh, I want nothing to do with that meanie. I want nothing to do with that guy, so let me jump into agnosticism or atheism or secularism. But you want to know what the problem then becomes? Atheism and secularism does not have a standard to criticize God with. Atheism has no moral objective framework. It can't have it. In an accidental universe where we're all just stuff, we're all just matter in motion, we're all just the accidental product of stardust, we have no reason when we bump into each other to say sorry. We're just stuff, and we're accidental, and we're all heading towards a slow, painful, very cold oblivion, and we're not even supposed to be here. Where in that framework do you get something like an objective moral standard that all people, including God, need to be held to? It doesn't exist. What people have to do is they have to borrow objective morality from Scripture, hold God up to it, decide they don't like Him, and then jump into a new religion. But here's the problem. They take this moral ruler from God, and they measure God by this moral ruler, and they say, you know what, you don't measure up. I don't like you. And they start to walk out, and God says, okay, that's fine, but before you go, I need my ruler back. And then they give God their moral ruler back because God doesn't exist. They don't love him, so they can't take it. So now they're in this world without a ruler, and somebody points them to 1 Samuel 15 and says, what's wrong with this? I don't have a ruler to measure this by. I don't know what's wrong with this. The key question, anytime a non-believer holds the scriptures or God up to a moral standard, you need to memorize these three words. Print them into your brain. By what standard? God is evil. Says who? What is evil? Define that for me. Where do you get it from? We live in a world that loves to promote subjective morality. And they say things like, every culture gets to create their own morality. And, and morals evolve over time. Well, apparently not for God. Why are we holding God to objective moral principles, but we get to make our own down here? Apparently, everyone gets their own subjective morality except for God. It's wrong to kill women and children. Says who? I might think that's wrong, but I have a biblical reason for thinking that. If you reject the Bible and then you say it's wrong to kill women and children, says who? Without the Bible, where do you get that kind of an idea? And by the way, I would encourage you to visit Elder Bill's class on Thursdays. If you think that rejecting the God of the Bible is going to free you into this utopia where women and children are never killed? Let me just remind you that the secular atheistic regimes have been the most violent, bloody, murderous regimes in all of human history. Do not pretend like secularism gives you a worldview where we don't kill women and children. Hitler and Mao and all of these men, Stalin, they didn't believe that. And they had no reason to. Why? Because they believed when they die, only sky. Nothing above them but sky. I'll answer to nobody. That's the worldview that's trying to criticize God right now. <laughs> it can't do it. 
If you try to criticize your way out of Christianity, you lose your ability to criticize anything at all. It's an internal contradiction. And let me just, before we move on to our second point, let me just also point out this glaring hypocrisy. The vast majority of people who would open you up to 1 Samuel 15 and say, look, God is so cruel because he kills babies, are the same people who vote and fund this practice every single day. The vast majority of people who are upset with God for killing infants right now celebrate and march in the streets their right and freedom to kill infants. They will donate money to Planned Parenthood who accomplishes infanticide by the thousands every single day. And then they turn around and say, how could God kill a child? You see, the world we live in has no problem with killing babies. They just have a problem when God does it. Because feminist theory is a rot. And what feminism has done is it has made women God. And so women have total autonomy. The gods that we worship, women, those gods, they can kill children all they want. Because it's their bodies. We worship women, and so their gods kill babies all the time. And then they turn around and criticize us that our God kills babies. Please do not ever think 1 Samuel 15 is a legitimate reason to abandon Christianity. There's a softer way of doing this, though, and it's becoming far more popular as the ages go on. The first way to avoid this is atheism. The second thing to avoid is what we call Marcionism. We need to avoid Marcionism. Marcion was one of the earliest heretics to the Christian church. A very, very early, right after the death of the apostles, Marcion rose up. And Marcion was known for a lot of bad theology, but particularly what he was known for was trying to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Basically, here's how Marcion read this quote. He would read this and say, you know what? They're right. The atheists are right. This God is mean. This God is cruel. This God is unworthy of my worship. But Jesus is nice. Jesus is kind. Jesus is loving. So here's what we need to do. We need to not worship the God of the Old Testament and just worship Jesus instead. Let's worship the nice God and let's realize the Old Testament for what it is. It's the writings of a, of a cruel, unkind God. So don't worship that mean God of the Old Testament. Worship nice, loving Jesus instead. So it was essential, Marcion essentially said, yeah, the Old Testament is evil. It is wicked. I don't follow it. I'll just follow the new. I'll just follow Jesus. Now, there are very few people who hold that position that blatantly today, but there are more subtle forms of it that exist among very popular teachers and in very popular circles. And the modern, more soft version of it essentially says something like this. The New Testament claims that Jesus is the full revelation of God, and that's true. He's the final word about who God is, that's true. And what we see in Jesus does not fit the Old Testament. So here's how we have to understand. What is the Old Testament then? In this view, the Old Testament is Israel trying their best to understand God. And they're writing down their best attempts to understand God. And then Jesus shows up to correct them. So this view would say something like, you know what, 1 Samuel 15, it is cruel, it is harsh, but it's not true. God didn't actually command this. The Israelites thought God commanded it. Samuel thought God commanded it, so he wrote it down. But Jesus has come to show us that Samuel and Saul and the Israelites were wrong. 
They've misunderstood God. They misunderstood his revelation. And now the fullness of God, Jesus, is here to show us all the ways we went wrong. So, a.k.a. the Old Testament's not inspired. A.k.a. the Old Testament is fallible. And thankfully, we have a New Testament. We have Jesus to show us the error of our ways. Let me tell you why you should not adopt this theory to get around 1 Samuel 15 either. The primary issue with this theory is that Jesus hates it. You think you're doing Jesus a favor, but Jesus hates it. Jesus had the highest view of the Old Testament that you can imagine. Read through your Gospels, and every time Jesus says anything about the, New Test the Old Testament, I want you to write it down in a journal. And take those quotations and gather what you think is Jesus' perspective of the Old Testament. And you show me where anywhere in any of the writings or the sayings of Jesus that we have, you show me any place where Jesus said something like, yeah, those foolish Israelites really thought they knew God, but they were woefully misinformed. Way off. They thought my heavenly father would kill people. How dumb were they? Jesus had an incredibly high view of the Old Testament. He held it above all other forms of tradition. He told the Pharisees, Woe to you, for you allow your traditions to break the commandments of Moses. He was born, Galatians says, under the law to fulfill the law. He said under multiple occasions, I have come so that the scriptures might not be broken to fulfill the scriptures. When he was tempted by Satan, he fought back with quotations from the Old Testament. His Sermon on the Mount was an explication of the goodness of God's law. I could go on and on and on. Jesus himself, after his resurrection on two separate occasions, even taught the, his disciples that the whole Old Testament was about him. That everything about me, written in the Psalms and the prophets, must be fulfilled. The problem with this is this internal contradiction. They think that we can have loving, loving Jesus and reject the Old Testament. But once you go along with Jesus, he forces you to accept the Old Testament. If you love a Jesus that doesn't love the Old Testament, you don't love the Jesus of the New Testament. And by the way, this goes beyond just Jesus. The New Testament itself never has a bad thing to say about the Old Testament, ever. Peter tells us the Old Testament was written by the Holy Spirit who carried men along. Paul tells us the Old Testament is sufficient to make us wise for salvation. He tells Timothy to be firmly and intimately acquainted with it. Jesus in the New Testament never have a bad thing to say about the Old Testament. They treat it as the authoritative, inspired, beautiful Word of God. So you will find yourself in an unfortunate contradiction if you try to worship a Jesus who hates the Old Testament. Because that Jesus doesn't exist. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to have the same view of the Old Testament that he had. And Jesus would never open up to 1 Samuel 15 and say, yeah, this is wrong. So the first two things not to do with the text, it's uncomfortable and that's okay. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. But there is no logical reason to read this text and say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. There, there just isn't. So let's soften the tone a little bit. How do we approach this then? Okay, fine, Colin, you've convinced me. I won't, I won't reject the God of the Bible on this basis. And Okay, fine, I, I won't reject the Old Testament on this basis. So what do I do with this? Because let's be honest, this is not easy. And can I say that's okay to say? If you think that's not okay to say, then I would suggest that maybe you haven't been paying close attention during our calls to worship. Uh, all throughout the Psalms, the psalmists were unafraid, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to say things to God like, why? 
where? Where are you? Why are you doing this? Why won't you do this? Those kinds of questions can eventually go into sin. But it is not inherently a sin to hold your head up to heaven and say, why God? The psalmists do it all the time. It's okay if this text bothers you. That's okay. That doesn't make you less spiritual than somebody else. That doesn't make you less holy than somebody else. Doesn't mean you love God less than somebody else. This is a difficult thing. So how can we try to soften the blow a little bit? Let me give you four helpful perspectives, or I hope they're helpful. Helpful perspectives on 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3. The first one I want us to remember is that this is relatively rare. This is a pretty rare event. It would be vastly inappropriate and vastly misleading to act like this scene in 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3 characterizes the whole of Scripture or all of God's redemptive plan. What we have here, by the way, this isn't just the Amalekites. This was also said about all the inhabitants of Canaan. What we have here is a particular people in covenant with God during a particular time in history in a particular place in God's redemptive story carrying out a particular judgment on a particular people and after this judgment is supposed to be carried out we almost never see it again. It's not like Jesus showed up and, and condemned the Israelites for why haven't you guys been killing more babies? What's going on here? Don't you know that this is what the whole thing is about? Just slaughtering our enemies? Don't you know that's what the scriptures are about? No, Jesus didn't show up with that message. Jesus gave the church a great commission and it has nothing to do with slaughtering the nations and it has everything to do with saving them. So God's general heart towards the nations, if you were to be fair to scripture and read it from Genesis to Revelation, his overwhelming, constant, general disposition towards the nations is I love them and I want to bring them into my kingdom. What we have are sometimes nations become so hardened and so evil and so rebellious that occasionally God gives them over and says they're beyond hope. It's time to bring just judgment here. So we have Sodom and Gomorrah. They're done. Destroy them. We have the Amalekites. They're done. Destroy them. The inhabitants of Canaan. They're done. Destroy them. But these are unique, rare, situated events in the The general disposition of Scripture is God's love for the nations. And all throughout the Psalms, we have, we have prophecies that the nations will come, that He will inherit the nations, that the nations will worship Him. So let's not go around and act like and pretend that God is this big, tyrannical, bloodthirsty God who just loves to slaughter people. That is a misreading of the whole of Scripture. It's missing the forest for the trees, as we say. This is a rare, unique event. The second thing that I want us to remember that I think will maybe help us cope with this is you need to remember this. Your feelings are fallible. Your feelings are fallible. We read a text like this and it doesn't make us feel good. We don't like this. But I would submit to you, your feelings are not a standard, not just for God, but they shouldn't even be a standard for you. Sometimes we feel certain ways towards things that we shouldn't. Sometimes we don't feel a certain way towards things that we should. If you're basing how you read this text, what you do with this text based on how you make it feel, then I would argue that's kind of like the blind leading the blind. How often in your own life have your feelings steered you wrong? Do you really believe your feelings, your gut reactions are an appropriate standard for your life? For how to read scripture? Uh, the fact remains that I, I promise you, I promise you, God knows better than your feelings. 
And I don't say that, again, I know sometimes in this culture we talk about feelings in a very derogatory sense. I don't say that. Feelings are good. God's given us feelings. When we get to heaven, one of the ways we're going to glorify God is by our feelings, right? The resurrection is not going to be this life, lifeless, stale, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That doesn't glorify God. Feelings are good. I'm not trying to be derogatory towards our feelings, but we have to understand in a fallen world, our feelings lead us astray. So you can't make too much of a text when your feelings are hurt, when you're morally confused. By the way, this was the lesson of Job. If you've read through the book of Job lately, it's long, but it's worth a read. God brings about horrible things on that poor man unspeakable things God does to that poor man. And then he debates his friends for a good portion of the book. And what's the lesson that he learns at the end of the book of Job? The lesson he doesn't learn, God doesn't come down with like a chart and a map. He says, okay, so I did this to you, but see why I did it. And here's over here, it'll do this, it'll lead. And then I did this to you, but notice the good that's going to come from it. I'm do this. God doesn't feel the need to explain himself and he doesn't feel the need to apologize. He does the exact opposite. He asks Job a series of rhetorical questions that essentially boil down to this. Where were you when I created everything? Job didn't understand what God was doing. Job didn't like what God was doing. But God's response to Job was, don't you think I probably know better than you? I mean, after all, I made Jupiter out of nothing. After all, I made atoms out of nothing. Were you there for that? Did you help me with that work? He is the omniscient, all-powerful, all-seeing, eternal God. I, I think he knows better than my feelings. Our feelings are fallible. So the first thing is that this is rare. The second thing is don't put too much stock in your feelings. The third thing I want us to look at though is this. This was just. This is where it really gets hard, but this is what the Bible gives us. This was just. This was not a temper tantrum. This was not arbitrary. This was just. Look with me again at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. The first thing the Lord tells us is, I remember the way this people group treated my people. If you read through the book of Joshua, Deuteronomy Joshua, you read through the story after the Exodus, what you will find is that as Israel is moving into the promised land, sometimes they encounter a nation, can we pass through? They let them pass through. Sometimes they encounter a nation, can we pass through? They don't let them pass through and they have to fight. But Amalek was different. Amalek heard about them and before they even made it to Amalek's border, Amalek charged and fought with Israel. And the text even tells us that Amalek specifically went after, among the crowd, those who lingered behind. Those who lingered behind are specifically who they targeted. And now that's a euphemism. What does that expression mean? I want you to imagine a group of thousands and thousands of people marching. Who is it that's most likely going to be in the back? Women and children and senior citizens. So as Israel is marching through the promised land, Amalek comes down unprovoked and slaughters their senior citizens, slaughters their women, slaughters their infants, slaughters their children. This was a people group that was well acquainted with slaughtering innocent people. And they attacked Israel unprovoked on multiple occasions. And so God tells them, I've given them up. I'm done with them. They're done now. It's time to repay them because I have taken note. I have remembered what they did to you. By the way, uh, stay in 1 Samuel 15. Look at verses 32 and 33. Verse 32 
Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And, he, and Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Why did Samuel bring destruction on Agag? Why did he kill Agag? Because that's all he does. Because he's been killing and slaughtering people for a long time. I would encourage you, you should even just buy a book on the archaeology of the Canaanite region. Read about these people groups. You tell me, it's really easy for us to paint them. Like, this is just these peaceful, loving people, and here comes Israel killing the women. These people groups were horrible. You think America's bad? You don't know anything. Even the gods that they worshipped, we have archaeological finds of the Canaanite gods. It, you'll have female goddesses, and the pictures, they will be stomping on human skulls, and their earrings and their jewelry will be human skulls, and they will be laughing, and blood, human blood will be coming up to their chins. The gods that these people worshipped were highly violent gods and they believed that by slaughtering people they would be blessed by gods. And let's not even, because we have children in the room, I won't even begin to tell you about the sexual practices of these people. But I promise you, Hollywood doesn't hold a candle. This was not some light, fluffy, spiritual, kind people group. These were evil, wicked, horrible people. God is not just doing this to, to make a point. God is not doing this to test us. God is doing this because he knows this is justice. This is just. That's the hard thing for us to believe. That's the hard thing for us to accept. But I would challenge you that that's far more cultural Christianity speaking than biblical Christianity. We in American Christianity, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too. I'm not exempting myself from this at all. Please don't hear me doing that. We have feminized the Bible. You know what's one of the things we started doing in church? I'm sure you noticed even today. We started to sing psalms. You know why we do that? Because the Bible tells us to. The Bible commands us to sing psalms. It is disobedience not to. But you want to know what's the benefit of that? You want to know why I think Christians have gone away from that? Because believe it or not, there was a time in Christian history where that's all they sang. The Reformation, I disagree with them, but Calvin and Zwingli, the Reformation leaders, they believed the Bible commanded us to only sing psalms. So that's all they sang. And you want to know what's one of the disadvantages of losing the psalms? We stopped singing things like we sang this morning. What did we sing this morning? We asked God in our songs to go to the enemies, the nations who are his enemy, and see their blood outpoured. You don't have to raise your hands at all, but I'm curious if any of you didn't want to sing that. I don't. I think it's kind of awkward. We're up here trying to worship and sing, and we're talking about God. Pour out your vengeance on our enemies. But you know what? That's all over the Psalms. And that's the inspired music that God gave us to sing. What does that mean? God wants us to see him as a just and vengeful God. Now hear me, I'm not trying to fit some mold right now. I know that this is what Calvinists are known for. Calvinists are known for, they love to preach fire and brimstone. They love to preach how wicked we are. And I'm not trying to fit a mold here. I'm saying this is the only way we can properly understand this text. I'm not trying to be somebody else or fit some tradition. What I'm saying is if you read through the Psalms, God regularly presents himself as a God who is vengeful, who avenges his people. 
And that's supposed to be good news to us, not bad news. God did not inspire 1 Samuel 15 to embarrass us. He inspired it to encourage us. That he avenges his people. I saw what Amalek did to you and I won't let it slide. We see in Romans chapter 12 and 13 this famous chapter about government. And God tells us, everyone's got the first part memorized. Where God tells us as individuals not to seek vengeance. Do not seek vengeance. Do not seek retribution. But then they forget to read into 13 where God tells us why. Why do we need not seek vengeance? You know what God says? Because vengeance is mine. I will repay. Is that supposed to be good news to us or not? We serve a just and vengeful God. And that's not my Calvinism speaking. That's 1 Samuel 15 speaking. And that's not supposed to embarrass us. That's supposed to encourage us. That might have different applications in the New Testament. I'm perfectly aware of that. I think that primarily comes through spiritual vengeance. A lot less in the Old Testament than did physical vengeance. But on the day of judgment, that's not going to be spiritual. <laughs> okay? Well, it will be, but it's going to be physical too. And let me remind us with this. You see, God has two, two ways. There are two means accessible to God for dealing with his enemies. Let me, let me say it differently. There are two ways God can destroy his enemies. The first way God can destroy his enemies is by converting them into friends. You realize that when someone converts and comes to Christ, that is the destruction of an enemy. They're no longer our enemy. The enemy's gone. God can destroy his enemies by converting people. And, and I would challenge us as Christians, this should always be our heart's cry. We don't know the will of God, but if it were up to us, if, if God asks us to come to him with our prayers, our prayers should be, God, save my enemies. That should always be our heart's cry. I think we learned this from Jesus. Love your enemies. Pray for them. So Jesus commands us, what should our will in the situation be? We want God to destroy his enemies through conversion. That's always our heart's desire. That's what we want. But God has a second means to destroy his enemies. He can convert them, but he can do it the old-fashioned way too. And I would challenge you that they're both supposed to be good news to us. Because in both situations, the enemies of God have been destroyed. And by the way, it's not unjust when he converts them. That's why Romans 3.26, describing the sacrifice of Christ. Why did Christ die for sins? Well, Romans 3.26 says, so that God might be just and the justifier. So that God has found a way to justify us, to forgive his enemies, but he does not sacrifice justice in the process. The purpose of the cross was not just so that God could justify us and be the justifier, but that he would be just when he does it. That he might be just and the justifier. So there's never any wrongdoing that is occurring when God chooses to save one group and chooses to destroy another. It's just across the board. It's just just in different ways, but it's always just. So 1 Samuel 15 presents to us that God can convert enemies or he can judge enemies, but that's always good and it's always just. That's how we help cope with this. It's hard to swallow, but in a more objective light, this really is good news. And the last thing I'll say, I'll be brief here. It's related to our third point, but... Typically, the reason this is hard for us is because if we're honest with ourselves, we typically tend to think a little too much of human nature and a little too little of sin. We think far too much of humankind and we think far too little of sin. 
The fact of the matter is the reason we struggle with a text like this is because we are humans and we are fallen people and so we identify with this people. <laughs> we identify with the Amalekites. We recognize before God saved me, I deserve death too. And so because we identify with them, we tend to think a little bit too highly of them because then we think a little higher of ourselves. We approach Amalekite men and we approach Amalekite women, we approach Amalekite children and we think they don't deserve to die. This is cruel because they don't deserve it. But we recognize they're sinners, so what does it mean? We think very highly of them and very little. Yeah, I know that they're sinners and I know they were born in a corrupt nature and I know they do wrong things and I know that, but I mean, at the end of the day, doesn't this seem a little harsh? So what are we doing? Yeah, they sin, but it's not that big a deal. But I encourage you to look at the cross of Christ if you think that God thinks sin is not that big a deal. Our sin is a big deal. The Amalekite sin was a big deal. The sin among this people group was a big deal. We need to remember that even before our regeneration, before we are saved, every beat of our heart is an undeserved gift. Every breath in our lungs is a gracious gift from God. If the day before God saved me, he took the breath from my lungs, he stopped my heart, and I stood before him in judgment, I would be able to find nothing he did wrong. I would not find mistreatment. I could try, but it wouldn't work. The fact of the matter is, we don't deserve life. And as long as we think God owes us something, this text will always be a big bother to us. It's easier to swallow when you realize God owes nothing to no one. That everything good we receive from him is pure, unfiltered, unadulterated grace. We are the bad guys in the story. We're the bad guys. When we watch a movie, we don't cry when the bad guys die. We cry when the good guys die. And the hard pill for us to swallow is that we're the bad guys. At least before God saves us, we're the bad guys. So the last thing I, I just end with this, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to be some cold-hearted, stoic Calvinist. But I think there really is wisdom in turning a text like this around when your enemies try to throw it in your face and bludgeon you over the head with it. I would encourage you that this text, you know what it should be for us? It should be a foreshadow of divine judgment. There's an interesting story in the Gospels where there's this famous event, the Tower of Siloam. There was this big tower and apparently it fell and killed a bunch of people. There's a structural problem and fell and killed people. And the Jews asked Jesus, why did that, were those people more sinful than everybody else? Why did God judge them in that way? They must have been more sinful than everybody else. And you know what Jesus essentially responds with? Jesus says, no, they weren't more sinful than everybody else. So that's why if you don't repent, something even worse is coming for you. That's what, that's what he says. <laughs> Jesus was not embarrassed by the tower. He did not, well, okay, let me, let me, okay, I know that seems really harsh. And I know, why would God do such a thing? But, ah, oh, man, it's really hard to deal with. But let me explain to you, God didn't actually do it. Okay, here's what, he wasn't embarrassed. He didn't apologize. He just immediately turned around and says, that was just, so repent. So what really should be our response when a text like this is thrown in our face? Yeah, God did do that. And if you don't turn, if you don't repent, you have something even worse coming for you. 
I know that's harsh. I know that makes me sound like a crabby Calvinist, but I'm, I'm telling you, that is what the world needs to hear. Not the Christian who's generally struggling through this text. That's not what they need to hear. But when the world comes at you with this text with a club, as, an, as a weapon, then you need to weaponize it back. But do not be embarrassed. And do not be ashamed. We serve a just God who avenges his people. That should encourage you today. Sometimes he does it in ways that we don't like, that are hard to understand, and that's okay. But let it encourage you today. He is just, and he defends his people.